0: Well, good morning, Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us here today, whether Ajax, Bowmanville, Port Perry, Pickering, or beyond. Welcome to this new series. Uh, A group of us from staff were out in Vancouver within the last week, uh, had the great privilege of hanging out with a bunch of church leaders from tons of other churches in the greater Vancouver area, and every time I'm on on a plane, uh, I do something intentionally, and I watch this experience, and I did it even more so knowing this series was beginning. So we got on uh, one of the newer planes owned by Air Canada, and the technology is amazing. Now, number one, I'd never seen so much carry-on luggage in my life. It was like everyone was moving to Vancouver. I have no clue how we all got it in. Anyways, it's all in, and the flight Flight attendants are pushing all sorts of things, and we get in, and because of the Netflix-style technology now, we hadn't even moved, and all of us had earphones on, and we're already watching movies and listening to music, and, and, and I'm watching because I know what's about to come, and I've shared this before. And so as I'm watching, I'm waiting for the flight attendant to stand up and go, oh, we just we need to show you this video because we need to show you what happens in case there's a problem because we, we want to help you not die, basically. And I watched when the moment came, and I watched as nobody watched the video. Nobody. I watched about 50 people, and everyone's looking up and to the side, and they're opening up Kindles. But the deeper thing that was happening is people were angry. Like, how dare you interrupt my Jojo Rabbit moment that was nominated for an Oscar? I'm watching Marvels, where is my drink, where are my pretzels? Why would you try helping me if I'm about to die? I really am enjoying my moment. And then I watched those flight attendants just sort of hopelessly watch us as none of us cared that they were trying to help us in the moment. And I thought, what an incredible insight to what I'm about to do today. So good morning, my name's John Thompson. I'll be your flight attendant today, ushers lock all the doors and all sights. No, I'm joking. If you're a guest here today, we're not called, it's, o- it's, o- it's okay, no, no, it's fine. But watch this, here's the truth. Unlike what flight attendants say on flights where they say there might be a problem, I'm gonna to declare today there is a problem. The plane is going down and all of us are going to die. It is 100% guaranteed that death is coming. And the question is, are you prepared for that conversation, and do you know what happens next? Our culture is so obsessed with now, and I want to understand now, and I want to be entertained now, that actually we are frustrated much of the time when the not yet interrupts the now, or someone talks to us about, hey, have you considered the future because we so want to control now? But this is one of these holy moments, and whether you're a guest here today, and you're a follower of Jesus, or even a long-term follower, or just became a Christian, you're a seeker, a skeptic, or maybe you were dragged here, no matter who you are and where you come from, God is going to speak not just about the now, but the guaranteed not yet. Before we get to questions in the next few weeks like hell and heaven and What is that like, and who gets to go there, and why do they go there, and should I even believe in that, and is it even just, and is it something just invented to scare people, or is there more than that? We actually need to start in a very different place. We need to start with a word that our culture hates. It's the word judgment. How many times have you said to someone, don't judge me, you don't understand my story, if you had my story, if you walked in my shoes, then dot, 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 or what's even going on more in our culture these days is this, we say there's no such thing as absolute truth, there's just your perspective. I just want to say as a side note, would you try that with a police officer next time you're pulled over for speeding, just say, I'm sorry, sir, I don't believe in absolute truth, I just need to inform you, I know you say I was going 70, but I feel I was going 40, good luck with that. Good luck. Oh, oh! everyone loves the idea of don't judge me until, of course, it comes on your doorstep or mine. Oh, and the law is absolutely clear. If you break the law, you are what? Guilty. Because there is a standard. And yet our culture hates the idea of absolutes and standards. And, And some people, as one person wrote, have gotten the idea to talk about sin, let alone judgment, is to deny the valid achievements of a culture or even say no one's good. Well, no, no, not at all. And yet we need this. The Bible is clear, by the way. Judgment is real. Judgment is coming. And because all of us as human beings, the most righteous and unrighteous, the most religious and secular and spiritual, all of us in the same boat, we have all sinned against a God we used to know. We're all made in His image, and God loves us, and yet God also is holy. Judgment stems from the attitude of a holy God towards sin. Like I said last week, we love to say all the time as a culture, God is love and he loves me so much just the way I am. No, that's unbiblical, that's untrue. God loves us despite the way we are. It costs God so much to love us. It was the great Anglican thinker J.I. Packer who still today lives in Vancouver who wrote, why do people shy away from the thought of God as a judge? Why, Why do we feel unworthy of him The truth is that part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would a God who puts no distinction between the beasts of history like Stalin and Hitler, if we're going to use names, and his people or others actually be praiseworthy or perfect? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection and not to judge the world would to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect, loving, moral being is that he chooses not to be indifferent to questions of right and wrong, but he has actually committed himself to judge the world at the end of time. See, we think that time is eternal, and it's not. There is one who invented time and God is outside of time and space and and time is in God's control and God has said time and time again within the scriptures that it will come to the end and when time runs out there will be something called the judgment. We love when we think about Jesus for c- coming into earth. We celebrated at Christmas. He comes so humbly as a baby, bringing the kingdom of God, giving grace to a broken world, teaching in a way we'd never seen, casting out demons, breaking the power of Satan, healing the sick, raising the dead, and we're just like, oh, this is incredible. And yet Jesus, while he was here doing all these things, said, oh, by the way, it's not always going to be like this. There's a time coming where all this mercy ends. Twelve out of the 36 parables of Jesus are about the last judgment. And I don't know if you've thought about what we call the second advent when Jesus comes again, but the description of Jesus in his glory returning should give you pause. How will Jesus look when he comes back one more time? Oh, it's described in Revelation 1.14. The hair on Jesus' head was white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters, in his right hand, the seven stars, coming out of his mouth, a sharp double edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, this is John, his best friend speaking, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Oh, when Jesus comes back a second time, and oh, by the way, whether you believe it or not, he's coming. He will come back all-powerful, all evil will be under his feet, and he will have a sword in his mouth. That is a metaphor to say that Jesus is going to come and bring judgment. And as another person wrote, judgment is God's underlying and ratification of the relationship towards him which we have chosen in this life. If we know and want relationship with God now in this life, we'll enter into the fullest experience of that later. If we do not know him now, we will not know him then. Heaven and hell are not just as much about future reward and punishment, but the logical outcome of our relationship with God in the now. So then the great question should be this. If the plane's going down, and we actually know the little lights aren't going to help, and if judgment is guaranteed and real no matter who we are, If Jesus talked about judgment more than heaven, if all of us are going to end up at the judgment, then how in the world would I know where I'm going to stand and where my family's going to stand and actually where my neighbors and friends and co-workers and even those I don't like are going to stand? Well, before we get to the great summary of what we call the great white throne judgment or the day in the New Testament, we need to go back to the one who taught about it because the person teaching it matters. So we need to go back to Jesus. Jesus. This is what Jesus said about himself in John 10 9. He said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and out and go and find pasture. And remember, he's speaking to a Jewish Orthodox audience. So he says, Oh, by the way, there's only one gate, or there's only one door. And you have to enter through that gate or you stay outside. You cannot say to God, give me another gate or another door, or there is no door at all. If you want to encounter God, if you want to know God's people, if you want your sins to be forgiven, if you want purpose that goes beyond sex, money, power, or religion, if you want eternal life, if you don't want the funeral to be the end of the conversation, then you must walk through Jesus. And anyone who, by the way, thinks they represent God has to get their authority and power and information from the true great gate and the true shepherd, which is Jesus. Again, notice there's one gate, not many. Jesus is the voice of salvation, the gate of salvation, and the guard of salvation. I shared this before. Let me do it again. When I was in Israel two times ago, I was in the great city of Haifa. And on this beautiful hill surrounded by immaculate gardens, there is the Grand Baha'i Temple. And in that, in that Baha'i temple, the Baha'i faith teaches that all faith groups will encounter God and know God. We're just using different names for the same thing. And so as you enter into that great sanctuary, there are nine doors representing the great nine religions. And depending on what you affiliate with, you go through that door. But the idea is we all meet in the middle, and we're all worshiping the same thing. We just culturally have different expressions. And if you go to one of their services, they read from uh, Buddhist writings and Hindu writings and Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Baha'i, etc., the Sikh faith. It's like what we see on our bumper stickers all the time that little phrase, coexist. Have you seen that bumper sticker before? And it has all the different religious symbols and let's all give peace a chance. And Jesus comes along and goes, Nope. No, I'm sorry, actually, that's all wrong. I have the right to say that because I'm actually God in flesh, and I'm the only one who lived a perfect life, and I've actually died a death where the deserved wrath, because we've all broken the law and be declared guilty, was placed on me. Oh, and by the way, I'm the only person who came back from the dead three days after I really was dead physically, and I come back and I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen on the other side. I'm the only one who's done what needs to be done, I'm the only one who's overcome sin. See, here's what we've gotta catch. Our culture teaches, and many of you believe here today, that sincerity is the most important thing. No, it's not. Sincerity is fine, but when it comes to salvation, it's who you know, not what you've done. That's why at the Sermon on the Mount, people love the Sermon on the Mount. People love quoting Jesus all around the world from every faith and philosophy and background, but they never quote the parts they don't like. Huh. What does Jesus say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. The wide gate is described as roomy and broad and spacious and easy. Another pastor said there's plenty of room on it for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It's it's marked by tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs or boundaries or thoughts about conduct. Travelers along the wide road follow their own inclinations, the own desires of their heart, even if it's fallen. Superficiality, self-love, hypocrisy, mechanical religion, false ambition self-love, all these things. You don't need to learn these things or cultivate these things. You need effort to resist these things. No effort is required in practicing them. They come natural. See, that's why the broad road is easy. And Jesus comes along, speaking again to a Jewish Orthodox audience, and says that path leads to destruction. Every person in the original audience would know he's talking about when time runs out. When the day comes, that leads to eternal uh uh-oh. And Jesus declares that the majority of human beings will walk on the wide road through the wide gate. Of all the people that has ever lived, are living at this moment, or will live, most will walk on this road, knowingly or not, they will cherish it, love it, defend it, support it, promote it. It's wide, it's roomy, it's broad, it's spacious, it makes so much sense, it feels so right, because all people can't be wrong, and all religions can get along, and all philosophies can get along, and let's just give peace a chance. And Jesus goes, no. He says, small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, And only few are going to find it. The small gate is described as narrow and crowded and restricted and hard-pressed, tough and unpopular... Following Jesus, repenting and realizing you're a sinner, knowing that you're separated from God, actually learning that everything you bring to the table won't work, has never been endorsed by most. It's not fashionable. It's absolutely not politically correct. It is not always unifying for family, friends, or society. Even though Jesus is the greatest example of love in history, even non Christians say that all the time. Even though people go, Jesus was so incredible and he forgave people and he restored people and he gave dignity to people who didn't have dignity. Jesus said, But if you don't come through me, you're lost. And people go, Excuse me. See, the light of God and the life of God divides people. Who's the narrow gate? Who's the only door? Who's the only good shepherd? Well, Jesus, that's why Jesus would utter these incredibly offensive, incredibly rude, incredibly arrogant and ignorant words, unless, of course, he is who he claims. I mean, Jesus, again, speaking in a Jewish community, says, oh, no, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life, not a life. No one comes to the Father, God, except through me. Excuse me? Oh, but here's the gospel in two lines. There is only one God. He is the creator of all things. We as human beings are made in his image and used to know him and used to love him, and he walked and loved us, and yet we decided we should have his job and have his title, and so we walked away, and we became sinful, and we became spiritually separated, and we even actually entered into death, and the only way back is the gate that God has provided, Jesus. This is an exclusive declaration about the uniqueness of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter would later, in a very pluralistic, multicultural world, just like us, he would stand up and say in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. Now, how could Jesus be so bold that not all religions work and not all roads lead to heaven? And if I'm good enough and kind enough and I give the United Way, you're telling me that doesn't work? Well, the answer is simple. See, Jesus isn't just a prophet. Jesus is not just some priest or religious leader or history maker or great societal revolutionary. No, he claims to be God in flesh. The only person who can bring us to God is God himself because he's the only one who's got the power to mess up, deal with the mess up we've all created. That's why in the next verse, Jesus says this shocking thing. If you really know me, you know my dad, my father, God as well. From now on, you do know him because you've seen him. How? Because you've seen me. Jesus, speaking about the broad and narrow way, says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not all who call me teacher or rabbi or master or sage or prophet or one path, not even all those people who claim me to be Lord and Savior and God in flesh will be saved. Here's another chilling way of saying it. Not all Christians who think they're Christians are really Christians. Many will say to me on that day, the day, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform miracles? Now, in the New Testament, the phrase, the day, is connected again to the great white throne judgment. And you've got to ask yourself a question in this verse. Is this like just an attack on some charismatic people? I used to think in fear, well, if I don't cast out demons, then maybe he won't say that to me. But actually fill in any blank you want. Oh, oh! many people on Judgment Day will say, well, I preached in your name, and I taught, and I baptized, and I gave, and sang hymns, and I, I raised my hands to Bethel and Hillsong, and I led worship, and I said the Apostles' Creator's Creed, and I helped the poor, and I gave the United Way, and I was really nice, and I was a pastor, and I, I wrote commentaries, and Jesus is about to say, I, I've never known you. Now, how in the world could someone who's doing all these amazing things miss this? It's not because they were doing those items. Actually, if you have certain spiritual gifts, you're supposed to do those items. So the question is, what is going on here? And here's the answer. These people on Judgment Day had bought into the damning, dangerous idea that they're saved by what they, what, do. Oh, don't you know who I am? God, I'm Reverend Dr. Thompson. Really? That's going to work on Judgment Day? You think that, by listen, there are no bishops or popes or pastors on Judgment Day. There's just people there's just people. And so if you've bought into the idea that you're good enough, kind enough, religious enough, but I go to church, I've done five Beth Moore studies. Look at me, Lord. God is fine with that. Unless you think that's how you get his love, you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by his son and what he's done for you. And this is critically different. So these people actually believe, look at me, God, I'm saved by what I do. And what does Jesus say? It's one of the most scary verses in all of the Bible. He will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Get away from me. Ready? You evil doers. These are some of the scariest words in all of the Bible. And as they sink in and stop and you reflect on them, did you catch it? (laughs) Did you see it? Jesus presents himself in this passage as the judge. The one that knows all and sees all and pass judgment on all of humanity and this can only be said if you're God himself and many of the great pastors and leaders in that moment were watching Jesus going hold on you're crossing the line only God can be judged and who are you to say you sit on his throne and actually this is blasphemy and you're a false teacher and you're a bad tree and we should stone you to death because actually what you're saying is wrong and before they can do any of that he keeps going he says oh by the way let me tell you about two houses I think our culture is obsessed about houses, don't you think? Home and garden television, we watch for hours. Other people build homes we want. Oh, I like that backsplash. House, house, house. Right? Now, God says, here's what Jesus says, right? He says there are two homes, and they are gorgeous. They've got the barn doors you want, and all the things you want, and they're all the right colors, and they look exactly the same. But what you have not asked is what are they built on? And you'll only know what they're built on when the great storm comes. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Oh, the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew, but the house did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. Oh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew against the house and it fell with a great crash. Jesus is saying to all the people, religious, unreligious, spiritual, and secular, where do you place your hope? Where is your salvation? Are you putting your life on me, the rock, or on something else? Where you place your foundation changes everything. All human beings, I want you to think about this today, you will face God by yourself to give him an account of your whole life. By yourself. I, Jonathan David Thompson, will stand there before God and meet him face to face. And all of his perfection and his holiness and his love will meet me. And the Bible says again and again, there is a time of mercy. And by the way, we're living it right now. God, oh, listen, God does not delight in judgment. God's not like, oh, excellent. No, no. God loves us. We're made in his image, but he also is holy. Remember what the Bible says. God's love is real, but his anger is also present on sin. And so this whole dynamic gets very real, and we're living in the time of mercy, but the time of mercy will come to an end. And to understand what that end point looks like, what the day looks like, the the great white throne, you need just to turn to Revelation 20. It reads like this, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him seated on it, and earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. The throne is gleaming white. God's glory, God's grandeur, God's purity. There's no shadow uh, in God. He's not like us. There's no darkness and light. God is not yin and yang. He is perfect. Who's sitting on the great white throne? Well, of course, it's God the Father's throne. But Jesus is now sitting on it. And remember, let me read the very words of Jesus. These are his words that everyone supposedly likes. When the Son of Man, Matthew 25, 31, comes in all of his glory with all his angels. He'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all Jews, no, no, all nations will be gathered before Jesus and Jesus will separate the people one from another as a shepherd shepherd, shepherd separates sheep from goat and, and the sheep will be on his right and the goat will be on his left. Did you notice it says literally the earth fled from God's presence in the face of the glory and grandeur of God the universe flees but the real point is this, there will be no place to hide. There's no place to get away. The end has come grace is over and now every human being will give an account Revelation 20:12 and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were open another book was open which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books these stand of the book of deeds Great and small, those with power and those without, those known and those unknown, all the people of history, the the great people, the writers and generals and poets and actors and the great thinkers and the great writers and politicians and every great religious leader and the billions of normal unknown people like us, we will be there too. And every human being will stand before God and stand before the judgment of Christ. And it says that the dead, every human being, will be judged according to what they had been done, they had done, recorded in the books. In other words, all that we do is being recorded. It says there are two books one for unbelievers and one for believers. And let's just sit with this again. There is no place to hide. When you die, there is no amount of talk to get you out, there's no money you can bring. You can't remove the act. We are stuck with judge and judged. Second maybe you didn't catch this but this should be encouraging did you see that humanity and satan does not set the timetable when things end god wins and third of all what is so joy giving and terrifying is that everything that has ever been done in public private and secret will be exposed i mean read the bible plainly it's there again and again and again and again Romans 2.16, this will take place on the day when God will judge people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. It ends up in heaven. You're laughing. I'd be woo. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he will punish those who do not know God and not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 20.13, the sea gave up the dead that were in them too and death and Hades, which we'll talk about next week, the waiting place, uh, the dead in them were also given up, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, what's really going on here? It seems to be saying that we can be saved by what we do. If you read this wrong, it seems to say, like, there's this big eternal scale, and when you face God, if you're good at ways, you're bad, then, then you're in, because, you know, you gave to the United Way, and you, you gave to World Vision, and, you know, no, 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 never. None of us will ever be saved by what we do. We're only saved by who we know. This is what was written so brilliantly in the New Testament in Ephesians 2.8. It's by grace that you get saved through faith. Faith in Jesus. It's never from yourself. It's always what? A gift of God. It's never by works, so no one gets to brag or boast. Salvation is by faith. It's faith and faith in Jesus, but your faith reveals the works that you produce. So the first book is where unbelievers are judged. Those who do not put their trust in Jesus will not have an advocate to be spared. Think about all the names of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus is called the great high priest who stands and prays for us and stands in the gap for us. Jesus is called the lamb of God that takes away what? The sin of the world and the sin of the world is placed on him. Jesus is called our savior. Jesus is called our Lord. Jesus is called the one who is the lover of our souls. But if you die and you don't have Jesus' covering and love and protection, then on judgment day, you're left with you. And you think that good works is gonna be enough? Do you think being religious is going to be enough or being kind in society? When you die, it's just you and God, and He knows everything. Everything. And then there's those who are written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Those that knew Jesus, that were saved by His mercy and grace. And this includes all of those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. And here's the critical thing we've got to recapture we also, as Christians, will be judged. But our judgment is not about salvation. It's about testing what we did for Jesus. Everything done for Jesus in this life will bring reward in the next life. All the things we did, though, that were even in Christian origin, but we did it for selfish means, will burn. 1 Corinthians 3.12, this is spoken to Christians. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood or hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day... Will bring it into the light and it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. What has been built survives, the builder receives reward. In other words, when we face God as Christians, though we are not talking about heaven or hell anymore, all that we do will be tested, our lives will be tested, and the image comes from. Ancient times when they would put gold in an incredibly hot furnace and all the impurities would burn out of the gold, but the pure metal would stay. And here's what God is teaching us. God is going to do this to you and to me and all the impurity in our life will burn away. So if you did something for God in this life, it's going to ripple into the next. But if you did something for yourself to get more Instagram followers, even if it's a verse, it's going to burn because it has no eternal ripple. Verse 15, it is burned up and the builder will suffer loss, yet we will be saved even though as one escaping through the flames. Some of us literally sitting in this room will live our whole lives, though we're Christians, for selfish means. And when we die and our life is tested, we will have nothing except our salvation. And the image is like you almost touch hell metaphorically and then go right up. Or another person said you'll be pulled out of the rubble just in the nick of time. Jesus himself dealt with this right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people, to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Oh, the Bible is clear as Christians, we're supposed to love the poor and pray and give our money regularly and fast and use spiritual gifts and serve, but motive is the ballgame. If you do it for God, it ripples into eternity. If you do it for yourself, it will burn. So many of my sermons on Judgment Day, gonna burn. So many of my conversations as Pastor John, gonna burn. So many of my theological views, I'm gonna go, really, I was right, wrong, gonna burn. So many of the acts I've done as a father, as a husband, as a Christian, as a leader, as a human being, even though I'm saved, have mixed quality and everything I did to self-promote or to guard myself or I did it of fear, it's all gonna burn even if I was doing it in the name of Jesus. We're not talking about salvation, we're talking about reward. Some of you are like, well, what's the reward we're gonna get? I tell you, I have no clue. But here's what I want to tell you. I want God's reward more than this life's reward. And here's something even deeper than that. My suspicion in the Bible is that when we see Jesus, we'll be so overcome by the picture of love of the person that we've given our lives to. We'll want to give everything back. And many of you will have nothing in your hands to give to the love of your soul because you live your life like this is the ball game and the next one doesn't even exist. He says, look, we're all going to be judged Revelation 20, 14, then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. The separation is final. The gap is fixed. There's no way back. It's done. One person gave us these very chilling and insightful words. The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians this present life this present life is closest we will ever come to hell and for unbelievers this is the closest they'll ever get to heaven. When we just plainly read the scriptures what do we learn? Well number 1 the final judgment satisfies the inward cry and need for justice in our world. See God's universe is fair. God is in control. God is keeping accurate records. A permanent, accurate record is being taken, and no one's going to get away with anything. No government, no person, no person with power, no one's going to get away with anything. I love when one person wrote, in this way, when I've been wronged as a Christian, I can give into God's hand my desire to harm or pay back or commit vengeance to the person who has genuinely wronged me, because I know in the end, that judgment will be real in one of two directions. If the person who's has terribly harmed you or wronged you becomes a Christian, God doesn't say, well, I'm not going to really deal with their sin. Isn't that nice to your brother and sister? No, no. Here's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, he literally took all the sins that had ever been committed and they were placed on him. And so was the just judgment of God. Jesus willingly said to the father, not under compulsion, put all of your wrath on me. So if someone comes in me, I've actually taken the bullet for them. So when someone harms you as a Christian and it's terrible and it's not just and they are a Christian or they become a Christian, you just remember justice has been done because Jesus literally has taken the place for that person and and basically gone to jail for them. And here's the opposite thing. If a person or a government or an organization has hurt you and and you're never going to get justice in this world, you just remember on judgment day, they will get their just desserts because there will be no covering for them at all. Here's the second thing. For Christians, this coming judgment should change how we actually live. One of the great things that's happened that's negative in the church in the West in the last 25 years is in the generation before in church, we only talked about the end so much. We never talked about the now. Now we talk about the now so much, we're not sure if the end is even coming. But if you don't live with the end in sight, you'll never live a holy life now. Uh, Peter, who, by the way, made up all sorts of mistakes and screw-ups in his life. We'd all agree. We're so glad Peter's in the Bible to give us all hope. What did he write at the end of his life? First Peter 1.17, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So this is written to Christians. To you that know Jesus, who's given you access to God, and now God is really your father. He's your dad. He's your Abba. Father is a name of God that allows us to know we belong. And this amazing relationship, which is true and never going to change, is not going to give any Christian a free, fa- free pass when we meet God at the end of time. God will judge each Christian according to the scope and character of the life they've lived, whether you were inspired by faith or self-interest. This is not about heaven and hell. This is about worship and stewardship. And here's what we've got to all recapture because the Bible is clear. God is going to judge each one of us as Christians impartially, indiscriminately, penetratingly, absolutely, and honestly. There is no favoritism in the family of God. It's just going to go down. And what does he say? So live a life of reverent fear, knowing that the God you love is going to make you give an account for the life you live. Here's how it reads in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if that's true, think about this thing. Matthew 6.20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. I love what Randy Acorn wrote. He says, suppose your home was in France. I would like to live in France, by the way. That would be great. The coffee's fantastic. And he says, you're visiting America for three months. I prefer France. okay. So you're there, and you're working in America for three months, and you're told you cannot bring back anything to France on your home flight. All you can do is work in America for three months, and you can send e-transfers back to France when you get home. Would you fill your hotel room with expensive furniture and the best wall hangings? Of course you wouldn't. For three months, you would send your money where your home is. You'd spend only what you need on the temporary residence, sending your treasures ahead, so when you got there, you had what you wanted. See, here's what we're missing when you know the judgment is coming and God promises reward. Why are so many of us living our life like this is the only deal? So many Christians don't give and don't tithe and don't give their time and don't get serious about spiritual gifts because we keep thinking this is the real deal and the next thing we're not really sure about. No, no. Understand, when you give here and you give with right motive and you serve here and you serve with right motive, you are paying it forward in a way you don't understand. The rewards in eternal life are better than any house you could own, any person you could be with. It is so much better better and God himself is going to give it to you. Why are you filling your hotel room with things that should be in France and not in America? So understand the power of this. Many of us don't give, don't sacrifice, aren't serious about the end of time, don't think that we should listen because we don't really believe this is going to happen. Listen, everyone, when we die or Jesus returns, either or when it happens, here's what's going to happen. Every single Christian is going to give an account about their money, their time, their spiritual gifts, their practices, all of it. And though we're going to be saved, there is a call for us to live differently. If you don't think you're going to be judged, you'll look no different than the GTA. You'll look just the same. Now some of you are here today, and what I love about this church is our church is filled with seekers and skeptics and people who don't believe, and and you're trying to work all this out, so you're like, oh my goodness, what's for me? Well, here it is. Find mercy today. You're living in the time of mercy now. Now. Remember, God is holy, but God is also love, and though we've wronged Him, and we've sinned against Him, and we have become enemies in our behavior against Him, He still comes after us like a teenager who keeps running away, and He keeps hugging us and trying to bring us home. And the time of mercy is now. And here's the question, will you face God on Judgment Day in relationship or without relationship? You're going to bring another religion to the table and say, oh no, you got it wrong, Jesus isn't enough. Really? Really? Oh, are you going to come to the table with your money? Listen, here's the thing we got to catch. I, I'm a pastor. I do this all the time. They're called funerals. And here's what I've never seen. I've never seen a U-Haul at a funeral. You can't take it. The Egyptians tried. We've put it all in museums. So here's what's critical. You, listen, when you die, you face God. And all your stuff goes to someone else. And it's just you and God. And in this time while you're alive, God loves you. Jesus has been sent to die in your place. He wants relationship with you. He wants to give you purpose in this life, eternal life right now, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance that the funeral is not the end, and he wants to be your father and your savior and your friend. He wants to walk with you like he used to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was years ago, I've quoted this before, that there was a great debate going on in a major university about the uniqueness of Christianity. And all these scholars were debating back and forth, true story. Oh, Christianity is unique because God took on flesh. Well, maybe not. Oh, no, Christianity is unique because of, a, of resurrection. Well, no, some other believe in resurrection, but it's a little different. And then C.S. Lewis, the grand atheist who became a Christian, who wrote the Narnia Chronicles, etc., came in in a very English, gruff way, sat down and said, what's all the rumpus about? I love that. What's all the rumpus about? And they all turned and they began to talk to each other They said, well, we're debating the uniqueness of Christianity. He says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. They said, what? He said, oh, it's grace. You'll find no other philosophy, no other religion, no other worldview that says that God is so loving despite our own wickedness that he would give himself to die in our place and continually show us mercy to the very end. That's the difference between the movement that some of us are part of and every other movement on earth. And if you are not a Christian, if you have never called on the mercy of God, or you are a Christian, but you understand you're not really one, or you're playing the game, or you think you're saved because you're good enough, you're lost. And the way to be found is to admit that you need help and put your trust in Jesus. Saul himself, who was at the first murder of the very first Christian after the resurrection of Jesus, who was jailing us systematically and trying to wipe out our movement as it was born, had an encounter with Jesus and later became a person named Paul. And years later, here's what he wrote. And these are the words for you that have never humbled yourself. You've never admitted that the judgment is coming and you need help. Here's what he writes for you. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death for real. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans ten nine. 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. All you must do is humble yourself and not trust in another faith, another leader, another philosophy, and even the things that are okay in this life, don't trust in them to be the rock because they will actually disappear when the judgment comes. That's week one. <laughs> That's week one. So why don't we do this? Why don't we stand together? Well, you can clap, but mm, yeah. Yeah. We're talking about hell next week, so we'll see how much clapping there is. We're gonna get to heaven, by the way, to week three, just to share. Yeah, there, it's good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. But no matter who you are and where you're from, could we take a moment to to actually pray? Because this matters. So uh, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. Number one, thank you, God, that you're good and that you're just. Thank you that you're not going to let anything slide or slip. Thank you that everything that's really screwed up in this world, you're going to deal with. All of it. You're going to deal with it all. So thank you for that. Thank you that our need for justice is going to be fulfilled. So important. Uh, Number two, God. Uh, Lots of us uh, in all the rooms that are listening to me right now, um, we are Christians. We understand grace, but... Uh, We have lived like a judgment is not coming. So Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit to teach us reverent fear, not worldly fear. And may there be an ongoing revolution in the heart and minds of Christians who go, I'm going to live differently because I know I'm going to give an account. I actually pray too in a very sincere, genuine, non manipulative way, God, would there be growing giving and gifts and time because actually we want to build treasure in heaven. Holy Spirit, speak to us about our money, about our bodies, about sex and power and relationships. Speak to us about it all. Because we know we're going to give an account. Uh, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit in such power that reverent fear would be found when we're alone, we're in relationships with others, family and friends, at work. Just help us to live like we're going to give an account. And lastly, if you've never met God through Jesus Christ, this is now your time. The time of mercy is still here right now. And all you need to do is say, God, I am... A human, made in your image, but I am not God. Forgive me for trusting in another religion, another person, in science, technology, sexuality, beauty, hard work, religiosity, you fill in the blank. Say, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I ask Jesus to cover me, to become my friend and high priest, my savior. So I have forgiveness now. And when I die and I face you in all of your glory... He's going to cover me. Be my Savior now. I repent. I believe, Jesus, you lived, you died, you rose from the dead, and I want to be saved. Last thing we pray, God, is that you'd continue to help us work out the real implications of judgment, hell, and heaven as we try to live faithfully in 2020 in the city that we love. Lord, your will be done. Keep working this through.